I personally believe there's a stronger Keynesian net here than there is in America anymore. Um, but it's, you know, I, I mean, we still have a lot of programs in America, okay? But it's the opinions that we have as to how they get distributed that becomes political. So when you pass something here, it gets down. It gets down to the person, you know, there's a channel. Look, like I said to you, there's 50 different kingdoms. You can do all you want in Washington, but if, if you know, Washington wants to make sure that the, the, the COVID uh, relief, you know, we call it stimulus. I mean, in order to get people their relief, they also have to pay off special interests. Mm. They, they're giving money to sports teams and arenas. So the people who are against frivolous spending, their opinions are going to be, <laughs> I'd love to help people, but you're paying off your special interests with the good deeds. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Roger Wilkins, an American now living in Adelaide. Roger is a strategic communications consultant and Republican political advisor. I recently met with Roger and we've had many fascinating chats trying to make sense of the differences and similarities between Australians and Americans. A strategic thinker and man with an eclectic background from selling solar power to veteran affairs and has worked in communications and strategic roles in New York and New Hampshire and shares a fascinating take on what makes the United States of America tick, its politics, people and history and we discuss how this compares with life in Australia. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Thanks for joining us today, Roger. I'm going to start off where we start all of these. Bit of a funny question. What were you like as a kid? What were you like when you were about eight? Oh, um, am I not a kid anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I would say that the energy level that I had as a child, I still have, except for my age, and I've got two kids under 10 that, that do drain my energy. But uh, ultimately, my rambunctiousness and uh, ability to uh, go out and, and get things. Uh, as a child, I was always into multiple circles of friends. Yeah. So... I always had multiple networks, even as a child, about you know, my neighborhood friends or my school friends or sports friends. Yeah. Um, and juggling all of that and trying to bring them all together constantly was something that I did right up through high school. Yeah. So trying to bring friends from one world into another. Where did you grow up? So I, uh, I'm from a family, um, a founding family of America. The Bray Wilkins family founded Salem Village in 1630. Yeah. And, um, and I don't say that to rest on the laurels of their works you know but it is interesting i grew up north of boston i grew up in salem and uh 
very excited to also be a historian and a political consultant and the fact that you know my family has had an impact uh, to this day my my uncle Alan is uh, is tapped whenever they're doing some kind of a uh, historical event or what have you mm. so Salem as you know is known for its witchcraft and the the witch the, the witches that were burnt and hung and all this stuff in fact they weren't burnt in a they were hung I think in Salem. Uh, and then the hysteria went on the ships back to Europe, and it really got out of control in Europe. Um, but uh, but my family had moved about sixty years before all that happened. Oh, is it sixty or fifty? But nonetheless, it's yeah. uh, you know a couple of generations before. And um, what's interesting is we would go down during Halloween, which is a very touristy time for Salem and which the witches would walk through and they would give out cider. And it was just a lot of excitement. They would have mock trials. And, um, and I realized that on my family, you had Salem village and Salem town. Okay. And Salem village turned into Danvers, Massachusetts and Salem town is what we now know as Salem. Mm. Um, and uh, anyways, the point is, is I had family in both areas and on both sides of being accused um, and uh, also uh, prosecuting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so you, most of your childhood was in Salem? In Salem, you know, until about the age of eight or nine. Yeah. And then we moved up what we call the Merrimack Valley, Merrimack River, yeah. uh, the Merrimack Valley. And uh, we moved to uh, Bradford, Massachusetts. And then by the time I was 15, we moved into the state of New Hampshire, which I call my, my home in America now. Um, is uh, New Hampshire, so, and that's all within about thirty miles. So, how big were the towns you lived in? Oh, I think Salem, probably. I mean, I don't know, but I, I would, I would roughly guess at minimum fifty thousand people at minimum. Yeah. Uh, it could be more than that. Um, and uh, my father grew up in Beverly Bay, Beverly, uh, which is the the area across the the bay. Um, and, uh, you know, a big whaling town. Yeah. Um, and uh, they have a thing called Pickering Wharf. And Pickering Wharf has those, the old 1970s uh, shows in which they, they light, they put lights on these carvings that will show action and they give audio background. It's very exciting. And yeah. uh, as a kid, I went to a daycare called the House of Seven Gables, which is strange. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it definitely has character in the Salem area. Um and, and the uh, towns you sort of moved to after, yeah, that, down to they, Bradford. They grew, they were bigger towns. Is that yeah, right? yeah, yeah. My mom divorced, and so her family was living in Haverhill, uh, Massachusetts, which is a neighboring town of Bradford. And uh, and then um, after she she went back to school, and after she was uh, a registered nurse, uh, she got opportunity. My mother got opportunity in New Hampshire, which at the age of fifteen, moving to New Hampshire, we used to call Cow Hampshire. Yeah. Really outside of the uh, the Boston market, and um, I had this uh, this big city attitude moving into a country town, and uh, it was the country town uh, of Derry, New Hampshire, um, which is was founded by those from Ireland in Derry, Ireland, and they have a whole history there. And uh, eventually, I would get involved in New Hampshire politics uh, at the oh, I had to have been twenty one. Yeah, I was okay. 21, so... So what was, like, in that 70s and 80s of growing up in, in those those towns? What well, was I'll it? give was, you a perspective. Was it a sense of community, or was it, Everybody like... has a, a, a different perspective, yeah, right? Okay. Um, 
you have a lot of the haves and the have-nots. Uh, I was part of a divorced, you know, typical latchkey family, you know, divorced mom, dad, uh, didn't, didn't come back. Um, he had mental illness. And so, you know, whatever, uh, we, 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 he's now passed. But the fact is, is, uh, we had to struggle. Uh, my brother and I just struggle. What it was like to be boys without fathers during uh, the 70s and 80s. And what happened usually is that the mother got discriminated against. Yeah. So credit would discriminate against her. Opportunity would discriminate against her. <clears throat> and uh, I'll be honest with you, one of the underpinnings of my philosophy where I became a conservative was the belief in oneself. The abilities that are inside of you can only be le- unleashed once you realize your potential. Um, a lot of the programs that look to do good for people to empower them sometimes uh, can hold them back and uh, uh, rather than letting them spring forward. And because these programs didn't do much for my, for my family particularly, it was when my mom realized that she was on her own and she just had to do it. Mm. Um, she so the support structure's not there, so you just have no, to. No, really- and you know, and I know we've come quite quite a distance in attitude, and we've come quite a distance in understanding how to help. You know, but uh, no, back then it was. Um, I mean, if you were a, a, a mother of two boys without without a um, without a husband or a father, there had to have been something wrong with you. Yeah, okay. you know, and she dealt with that constantly. Now, what's what's ironic is my grandfather actually dealt with the same exact thing, where his family broke down in Melbourne. They came over to Melbourne in the 1920s, and when my great grandmother and my great grandfather uh, split up for a variety of dramatic reasons, um, she would enter the world in the 1920s being. Uh, a mother without a husband and without uh, w- without a father. Um, so my grandfather was a great source of input for me. He had he totally understood, mm. you know. So you know he was a scoutmaster in the Boy Scouts, and he helped me to understand, you know, a lot about a lot about being a man is about realizing this world, re- you know, expects from you, um, or it will expect of you. Mm. Is what I grew mm. up so. You can you can build the world you want, or the world will be built for you. Yeah. It's uh, so as a child that reading between the lines, that perception of did you have a, a sense of there are the haves and the have nots, right? Was, yeah, did, well, did you the, have that view? Did, yeah, the, as, a, as an eight year old, ten year old, twelve year old, you kind of go, stuff I didn't we're, have. "We're in the we we don't have that," and there's there's some going to, and from an outsider's perspective, an Australian looking into the US, there's an idea idyllic kind of view of middle American community, oh, et cetera, that likely we've, we've, we've got too, but, but yeah. there's certainly in a lot of the TV and the media that we see from that time of generation, there was very much of a, a perfect world and mum and dad and the kids. And is that, is yeah, that kind of... Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, um, you know, there's, there's a sense in film called neorealism, right? And a neorealist is to, is to portray... The, is separate from the fantasy, mm-hmm. right? You know, Fellini in Italy was big on separating from the fantasy. Um, and I, at least that's my interpretation, um, I would say that you're going through that right now where um, people are admonishing the fantasy. But what I say, my argument is, hey, listen, you know, we don't pick up books and read movies to reflect the very same stresses that we just walked through the doors to to escape. 
sometimes we want to pick up the books and we want to watch the movies because there's something that we're not experiencing. It can be negative and it can be positive. It doesn't always have to be positive. But but positive should be one of the elements. We shouldn't necessarily judge against it. As a kid, one thing that I found, you know, in the middle of me growing up, we had protests. We had anti-nuclear protests everywhere. Um, we had... Um, we had we, our region in New England had built a uh, a nuclear reactor uh, for power in on the border of Massachusetts and New Hampshire. And the New Hampshire and the, the New Hampshire and Massachusetts governors would fight over it. You would know the two men who would fight. They become historical figures in America. One was Governor John Sununu, uh, who would become a chief of staff for uh, George Bush Senior. Um, and uh, the other was Michael Dukakis, who was George Bush's primary opponent in the uh, – not primary, but um, but partisan opponent in the Democratic Party during the 1988 elections. I mean I lived in the middle of that circus, and what would happen is uh, you know, the left would organize and chain themselves up against the fences of the Seabrook power plant. And, you know, the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission would get involved. And these two little states, out of, out of 50 states, these two little states had an inordinate amount of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I, I was class of 89. You know, we're in the pr- first in the nation primary state, which means that we're the first state in the, what you call pre-selection. We're the first state. So anybody who has, has um, dreams of becoming president – We'll come to New Hampshire every four years. Yeah, okay. So I'm in the middle of all this. I'm only, I think I was 16, 17 years old. Yeah. So, so just building on that, when did you first become, I guess, political as a child? Yeah, I would definitely say uh, uh, in, um, in high school. In high school, I was uh, very much a, um, uh, a young Democrat. Ironically, I'm now a Republican consultant, mm. but um, but we were trying to help a, a senator, an independent senator, independent Democrat senator that uh, no one knew at the time, but they'd come to know as Senator Al Gore. So um, uh, he was a pro-life conservative Democrat uh, in 1987. By 1992, he would become a liberal Clinton vice president, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and uh, – and and um, and so on that 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 history and so politicians. So go. Pol- politically, you like so in say uh, before senior school, you were aware of imbalance. It sounds like you were aware yeah. of imbalance, and then as you got to high school, it, yeah, it, maybe more s- social a, kind of views. Yeah. Is that fair? You kind of yeah. moved into kind of and then. I, I think that you know you grow. Um, you know, um, one thing that fiscal conservatism comes from is either I have a lot of money and I don't want to let it go or I the only the only amount of money I, I have is what I make so I don't want to let that go you know and you know I've been talking a lot of my friends imagine this being from the northeast a lot of my friends are are from the other party and um, but a lot of them have had opportunity mm. you know opportunity in which they have stuff to give a lot of us who grew up struggling have it. There's an effect of I've I, I've worked for this. The government didn't come and help me on this, you know. So therefore, there's the there's the fog, if you will, of the ability to give back to the community that give to you if you if you experience that perspective that the community gave to you. If you come from a disenchantment, an alienation that the community took from you. Um, 
then you you know you you might have a reaction that is not community involved mm. but i've always argued that america i mean out of the out of the words of jerry seinfeld jerry seinfeld said one time uh, uh apparently I, I i live in a community i, mean, I had no idea yeah yeah you, you know, the thing is individualism is pervasive uh in our society but the way that america is presented in like tv shows over the decades it is that or a community, and that—that's kind of, I guess, what what we would have maybe maybe, maybe not signed for when you start thinking about <laughs> that. But a lot of the shows were <clears throat> happy middle American families. Yeah, I need to remember too that um, the the idea of America, you know, is not the identity of a Bostonian. It's not. It's not owned to New Yorkers. You know, there are South Carolinians, there are Floridians, there mm. are Texans. I mean, they all have a different perspective and experience with what it means uh, to be an American. But they don't necessarily – it's funny, you know, a friend of mine said, you know, when you travel and you meet Americans around the world, the first thing they do, Southerners will say the state they're from. So a Southerner will say, I'm from Tennessee. But if you're from the North, you say the city you're from. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's just a strange, strange thing, a strange observation. But what I'm trying to say is that, hi, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Australian. Yeah, I'm Bob, I'm Australian. Yeah, I'm from Australia. Mm. Commonwealth of Australia. America, they travel to say where they're literally from, their state. Yeah, their, or their city. Their empire is not this, uh, this, this um, cohesiveness of thought from sea to shining sea we have 50 kingdoms that have 50 different ways of yeah. operating that have committed themselves to each other and their destiny that that doesn't go without argument yeah. you know or debate so rather than saying we are american that that i yeah, am i'm an island I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a chicagoan yeah okay and yeah. almost like a separate country yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And, and they're proud of that because, you know, what you have to understand, what people don't understand around the world is the first 10 years of existence for America really was that, that these states were nations. So we actually had a president of New Hampshire. And in one of your um, Hollywood shows, uh, The West Wing, uh, Josiah Bartlett was our president in New Hampshire. Yeah, okay. So he was a character that was brought out of history, brought forward from Martin Sheen. And that they would talk about New Hampshire. You, would you even know a factoid? They've never, they never filmed or visited New Hampshire, oh, ever. Wow. Which they could have several times, but for some reason they didn't do it. Um, you can hear that New Hampshire uh, regret my my voice. But uh, the fact is, is uh, you 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 have presidents of Texas, presidents you know of New Hampshire and uh, Massachusetts, and then they got rid of the Articles of Confederation, passed the Constitution as we know it, and they became governors, just like you guys have premiers. Um, and, uh, and I would say that the, if you follow that history, and you, and you also, I, I urge people who are trying to learn about you know, gun violence and gun ownership and you know, um, the idea of voting and the ideas of, of uh, even abortion, Look, all these laws, laws are secondary to the social contract. And, and actually, some people argue it's not a social contract, okay, that it is the principles of this country. It's not something for debate. If you want to amend and change it, you can do that, but there's a process. And we've even changed the Constitution over drinking, 
the Prohibition era, you know? Mm -hmm. And then we had to change the Constitution again to get drinking back. Yeah, okay. You know, so the idea that we, the idea that the courts here are run by mostly common law, you know, uh, cases and precedent. We have we we have a term that doesn't make any sense over here called judicial activism, because they're they are only seen they are constructed in a constitution as a branch, not the branch. They are a branch, mm. and everybody has checks and balances. Everybody has equal powers. So when the Speaker of the House says that the president should be seen for impeachment. It's not an authority. It's an opinion of one branch that wants in always throughout our society, our, 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 our distribution of power. One branch is always trying to take over the other. Always. Because they believe in their, their role in the American Republic. That they believe that, that they need to strengthen their role. Um, of course, the story of, uh, of uh, Rome and everyone wants to be Caesar is brought forward. And uh, the fact is, is that there's not a there's not a politician in D.C. that doesn't want to be president. I mean, that's is the that right? well, that would be the ultimate yeah, yeah. Um, power, you yeah. know. I mean, they would have as they see it. Of course, I would argue that's not the case. Mm -hmm. um, I've always thought personally that the Senate Majority Leader is the most powerful position in in, in the city of Washington, um, but a governor. A governor is probably the most in touch uh, politician in the country, and that's why we elect mostly governors. If you're a governor, you got a good shot at becoming president. Yeah, okay. If you're a senator, it's not as easy because it's seen as as a politician, not as an executive. Mm. You know. And so you're. You, and I realize I'm be, rambling here. I, no, I no, no, no. It's good. <laughs> you, you you mentioned earlier about your political passion was ignited particularly in your like your your teenage years but because you got to your early 20s in New Hampshire yeah and you talked about sort of if you want to become president sort of New Hampshire is a good place to start that's right you, so what, why is that can you unpack that a little bit more and why is that yeah. so in the progressive era um, Teddy Roosevelt broke down a lot of the barriers to public input. Uh, of course, this goes back to Abraham Lincoln in the in the founding of the new party, the the disaffected Democrats who were known as the Whigs, or then become known as the Republican Party. And the Republican Party launches itself um, in this new era under Abraham Lincoln. But Abraham Lincoln was not wanted by those who put the party together. The only way for him to confirm his nomination because they wouldn't let the delegates in the door, the party establishment would not let the delegates in the door. So what he did was he turned around. And he, he had the convention outside the hall, and he got himself nominated because they had a quorum. Yeah. Okay, that's how the Republican Party was born. That's how new the new republic was born. So then you have 40 years or 50 years later, maybe we have 40 years or so and change. Um, you have Teddy Roosevelt, who comes along too, seen as a cowboy. Uh, new York governor, uh, but could not be controlled, could not be restrained. Uh, he's put as vice president, and all of a sudden McKinley uh, gets shot and dies, and Teddy Roosevelt comes on the scene. And he decides, well, you know, I'm one of the disaffected many just because they won't let me in the club. I mean, he had plenty of money, you know, and he was a, a arist an aristocracy, but he was not allowed to be part of the club. So he became a voice. Um, his beliefs became uh, what was known as the, the progressive era, and he... Uh, one of the reforms that came out of the progressive era, other than the 
the uh, antitrust laws that are so famous in America that we hear about when media tries to come together and Congress has to approve. The antitrust um, came out of that era. Also, the breaking up of the uh, power brokers, the, 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 the power brokers behind the smoke-filled you know, curtains, you know, smoke-filled back rooms of who was choosing to be president. Mm-hmm. And because he was, he was almost not allowed to be on the ticket because they didn't want him to be president, you know, I would imagine motivated him to go into a direction of how to get the public involved. And one of those things was uh, what came out of that was that New Hampshire was chosen. Why was New Hampshire chosen? And did anybody think it would be a big deal? No. I, I think it just happened. Um, and I can't explain because I don't have that depth. And that's basically maintained since? It's been, it's been maintained. I think there was a hiccup once or twice. But then we passed the law that said that we have to be, we, in, our, in our state, we have to be first and we have to be a week away from any similar election. So the Secretary of State has ongoing authority to move our date, d- depending on how other state legislatures move their date. And we've had, throughout the 90s, uh, we had fights with Arizona, um, Delaware. Uh, they would try to creep right up and uh, be, a, be a contest like within three days of ours, sometimes moving ahead of ours. And Secretary of State Bill Gardner, who's the dean of the uh, uh, Secretary of State's of, uh, Association in America, he's the longest serving. Um, Bill Gardner has done a lot to keep our uh, First in the Nation primary uh, first in the nation. You know, um, it means a lot. At one time, I did a study. It was something. It meant something like sixty million dollars to a state that only has one point three million people. Yeah, okay. that's a lot of money. You know, and that's a lot of reason to maintain. And it's not just the political campaigns; it's what the it's the attention the political campaigns bring. So, if you're a, a Tokyo news reporter and you're told to go cover the primaries, you're going to come to New Hampshire. You're going to book out a week or two of hotel. You're going to spend money. All that is what really is motivating a lot of politicians in New Hampshire. Otherwise, trust me. Once the decision is made and they have the election on that night, we're ready to get back to our own business and let the circus leave town, as we say. And uh, other states now have to vote on their selections for for the nominee. But it's an open process. And I know that you guys here, I've heard of thing, uh, terms like branch stacking. Mm. And um, I mean, that's we're the antithesis of that. In fact, there are states, I think Virginia... Has a it, it has total open primaries. You could be a dem- registered Democrat and go and vote in the Republican primaries. I mean, you can only vote once. Yeah. But nonetheless, that would just that just blows your mind if you're if you're a labor over here and you're like, well, you know, liberal party you know, liberal party members voting in our pre-selections crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, Teddy Roosevelt said, you know what? We have to test these presidential uh, candidates before they're chosen. Because we have to see whether they have any gravitas with the people. Otherwise, we're just adopting our leaders. Mm. We're not actually in the, uh, on the inside. And his belief is that we had to be on the inside. We had to, st- we had to take down the veil, yeah. if you will. It's interesting when you compare Australia and the US. And obviously, I've, well, not obviously, but um, I've spent my life in, in Australia. So you look at the US and it all seems very confusing politically. But ours is quite sort of clear cut and... Right, almost maybe a sense of maybe fairness, where I think the 
the US is probably more about freedom that anyone can achieve if they're willing to work hard enough to to climb their way up to the top. Is that is that a fair? Well, you know, fairness isn't fairness. fairness isn't, wouldn't fairness be uh, an evaluation of where you stand? So if you're if 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 you are totally without, you have no opportunity, and you haven't been given a, a shake, and you've been in a position that you don't like for a long time, you think that somebody you possibly could think that somebody isn't being fair to you. You could be on the other end of the spectrum and had nothing but opportunity, nothing but uh, wealth and privilege and. Uh, and capability and education and everything has been thrown your way. But yet, I am sure you will find something that you don't have that you wish you had. Mm. You know? So it's, fairness is about perspective, mm. I think. But so, Australia has that sense that we are a fair place. And I, and I agree with what you're saying, that there are cracks that we aren't fair. So everybody isn't equal. But I think in Australia, more so than in the US, Australia would say it's all fair. And we won't say... There's a tall poppy syndrome in Australia that's quite big that if you're too big for your boots, we don't like that. We, right. we don't like that kind of cockiness, Australians would say. But that, that sense that it is fair. But you're exactly right. There are people that <laughs> don't have the same um, don't have the same thing. But in the US, I, I, my impression is that there's not a sense, even kind of going back to your childhood, going, not a sense that the world's not fair. That's just, that's just that's where right. it is. You, need to, you may need to make your own future. If you don't have is, something. Would that, you say that's a fair yeah. ethos in the US yeah. of you have freedom to kind of work hard. I'd say the US is much more entrepreneurial in, as well. Yeah. Work hard, strive. Maybe you might be able to have a billion-dollar business or, or become president. But that would be an evolution. You have to remember, first off, when I say your perspective, Australians' perspective, when you read the history of this country, they went to one of their Commonwealth conventions in London. They looked at all the children that were running throughout the streets and were impoverished, and they said, we're going to build a country where that doesn't happen. Okay, that's the perspective. So that has been the mission. That has been the goal. That has been your reaction and perspective to fairness. When America was founded, we were founded against people, basically, that, um, that didn't understand why this country that was so far away and didn't offer anything, kept coming on shore, collecting taxes and imposing its will um, on the uh, citizens. Now, does that sound naive? It does, because there's also other parts of the financial equation where a lot of the founding fathers owed money to the British crown, and we all understand that. However, I, I will say that eventually America wound up with taxes too. Okay, so that perspective is kind of, uh, I, I think that's more cynical. I do think that the, the people that put their lives on the line for, for my country to be free of England were, had already been divorced from an aggressive French and, uh, well, we call it the French and Indian War, but it was the, it was the French and Indians against the English. And uh, we had been exhausted by the madness of King George. We have been exhausted by these military guys walking throughout our communities with their rifles oppressing us. Uh, we're trying to evolve and we're not being allowed to because we have to do business with these faraway um, entities in the East Indies and down in the... I mean, for no reason we had to go to the Caribbean to trade. You know, so we, our perspective was freedom. Mm. So that's our perspective. And then all of a sudden what you had was... A big, this big gravitas and magnetism of immigrants in the late 19th century to say, go to the land of the free. We're not free here in Italy. We're not free here in uh, Europe. Let's get over to America. 
okay? And let's be free because these monarchs and these dictators are driving us crazy. So the thing is they come on over. They also run away from famine like the uh, Irish did. Uh, but they came over because we were a land of, of abundance and we were free. Mm. If we were a land of abundance and we were oppressed, nobody would be coming in. Yeah. So by the time that we enter the 20th century, Australia is about economic freedom, if you will, or economic security, really, you know, fairness in, in economics. And America is simply looking for opportunity. Opportunity at all costs, you know. And I, I think, frankly, that, I mean, our country is a land of immigrants. Uh, but for 100 years, I wouldn't say that they were a land of immigrants. I'd say that they were basically mm. English aristocracy that were running the East Coast. And then once expansion happened, everything came together for what is now modern America. Mm. You know, um, nobody else offers um, the opportunity of self-expression. It doesn't mean that there, that you've wiped out oppression or, or ignorance, but we, we're trying to pass laws. Every generation seemed to be passing laws to open up the aperture mm. for, for opinion. You know, um, you never would have thought that you'd see uh, expression. Um, I mean, look, the 60s, okay, brought on the peace, the peace movement. Okay, they wanted everything to change. They got into the institutions of journalism and into the institutions of education and government. Now they run everything. The folks from the 60s now run everything. And now the people who are upset are not peaceful. They are, they are in the streets and they want to be heard. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But the fact is, is that they still feel like they can do that. They don't feel like there's going to be a military crackdown in America on that. Now, you can have a president that's left-wing, right-wing, whatever, and you hear the rhetoric. But what I love about my country and what I hope I hope others appreciate about America is there is no allegiance to the crown. Yeah, okay. I mean, here you have that discussion. Mm. We don't have that. We have no discussion like yeah. that. You know, so I think that once you... I mean, here, it's right there in your real estate. I was a real estate agent and the first position on all home ownership is Queen's, uh, Queen's title. Yeah, okay. That would blow an American away. That would be like, well, who is this? <laughs> so, so the U.S. is about cre- you, and individually and as a country about creating opportunities. Would you say that's a fair kind of – Giving freedom you – know, freedom on a frontier can look uninviting. Mm. I mean it can be really tough. But freedom itself – if taken away, opportunity can't exist. Yeah. Everything's gifted. Then it's not an opportunity; it's a gift. Yeah. You know, we we're very proud. I mean, immigrants are very proud of their lineage and hard work and how they got to their story. Mm. You'll see if they have a restaurant, they have a whole story yeah. about their journey to America. Uh, we have a local who fought uh, communism in Yugoslavia just to get to Manchester, New Hampshire, to open up his uh, his Hungarian. He calls it a Hungarian pasta shop or something like that, and it's called Lala's. It might not even still be there, but you know his fight against the Hungarian tanks and everything was real. He had it up on the on the you know on the uh, wall, and uh, he also talked about Yugoslavia and Eastern Europe and this guy's journey to get to Manchester, New Hampshire. Was uh, had a lot more meat to it than the fact that I was born in New England mm. and we decided to live there. <laughs> yeah. So you look at someone like that and you're like, wow, they really they made a decision. 
why did they make that decision? He'll look at you and he'll say, freedom. Yeah. I and, couldn't and, get freedom. And creating his future. And right? creating his own and where future. where he came from didn't have freedom. That's right. So the opposite right. of, opposite of a, a repressed country yeah. is freedom that the U.S. offers. Yeah, yeah. and you know, we can talk about how, how we evolve in the next hundred years, but we come from different – you know, to compare apples and oranges, I would say that um, we don't have a security of a common thread of culture – by which to expand off of like Australia does. However, if you are if you are um, a uh, 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 if you are a native here, um, you would definitely argue that that culture doesn't identify with you. Yeah. Okay. But honestly, we're having we're having the same discussions in America. And it doesn't seem to me to be any different than any other discussions of refugees right. or you know settling uh, Israel or I mean just name it you know the Sudanese I mean just name the the mm-hmm. the, the the crisis. Well, certainly, the Black Lives Matters in the U.S. has been adopted by Australia, and in many ways, the way we've treated um, our indigenous population is arguably. And far it's worse their perspective, in Australia, so, yeah. right? And that's their perspective, mm. and in the, the, the perspective of everybody that's sitting at the table, I mean, the whole idea of freedom is to guarantee that the person across from you, although you don't agree, has an opinion. So the idea that there are good opinions and bad opinions is is an individual's perspective. Um, I think that when I mean, I, I have been very impressed by how by how you have handled those particulars with the with the demonstrations and the you know i mean you know i mean i'm i'm a firm believer in law and order i think that it's the way that we can guarantee that our what we have chosen for a life is secured okay um but at the same time, uh, you know, everybody has to have an have, People have to be able to express their opinion. It's the ventilation that we need, or the pressure cooker, you know, blows up as you've seen. And um, so I think you know, if, if we're about freedom, and Australia is about freedom through economic uh, security, you know, I think that there's just different priorities. Mm. But you, but right. it, be, it, it does make sense that we're allies. Yeah, would you, would you your observation of Australia? You've been in Australia for a couple of years, a few years, three years. Yeah. Um, but I lived in Canberra for a couple of years too. Yeah, yeah, that's still Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but would you say that Australia has more of an economic safety net for its individual individuals? Than oh, that's ever? definitely the philosophy. I mean, I would say I personally believe there's a stronger Keynesian net here than there is in America anymore. Um, but it's, you know, I, I mean, we still have a lot of programs in America, okay? But it's the opinions that we have as to how they get distributed that becomes political. So when you pass something here, it gets down. It gets down to the person, you know, it, it, there's a channel. Look, like I said to you, there's 50 different kingdoms. You can do all you want in Washington, but if, if you know, Washington wants to make sure that the, the COVID uh, relief, you know, we call it stimulus. I mean, in order to get people their relief, they also have to pay off special interests. Mm. They, they're giving money to sports teams and arenas. So the people who are against frivolous spending, their opinions are going to be, <laughs> I'd love to help people, but 
you're paying off your special interests with the good deeds. Can't we just be about good deeds? Now, obviously, you know, uh, everyone's going to have a different opinion about what I just said. The point is, is that you have different opinions and you then you then you once you pass something and you give it to the states, you have 50 different philosophies to deal with. And then whatever that looks like. And we're, we have national Democrats right now who are running in the Democratic Party. The local Democrats have really disappeared. They're really national Democrats um, with a national view about how the nation should be. And in the Republican Party or conservatives, they're still fighting for local control. So that, is, that fight has never gone away since the 50s, which was a realignment it was Republicans leaving Abraham Lincoln, going towards Teddy Roosevelt, leading up to the fifties that had more of a national view, mm. you know. And we had what was called the re, the realignment of, of both parties, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the basically the the uh, Republicans went from the north to the south, and the Democrats went from the south to the north. Yeah, um, you know. So so my point to you is that yes, B- BLM, civil rights movement. You know, uh, the taxpayers' revolt of 09, you know, taking back Congress after cronyism in 1994. I mean, it's it's just a society that should secure everyone's opinion to see how you can run it and then see how you do when you run it. So American, it's one of the, I think, Peter Drew, um, poster boy, he puts up a lot of posters around town, but he's been to the US and he's, he um, interviewed him in a previous episode. Uh, he described America as much more willing to discuss politics than Australians. We Australians don't like to, to discuss politics too much. Um, uh, where, where the US may be a little bit more, a little bit more open to talking about you. That doesn't even, I mean they're going to they want to be friends with the opposite side, but they're they're willing to kind of discuss and debate, say something like gun laws or 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 wearing know. a mask. You're not sure. My my experience here is I have been asked more about President Trump. <laughs> In Australia, <laughs> than I've been asked in America. That's probably more a WTF kind of what well, question mark. I, to is be it honest, or? I no, I actually believe you guys because I be, I believe because of you know most entertainment is coming from America, so the export of our our politics is is in is it competes with your local politics, so it becomes a. Uh, uh, you know, um, a celebrity du jour is uh, who's in Hollywood or who's in Washington, right? It's, yeah. It seems we gossip about both. Uh, but in America, um, I got to be honest with you, people don't necessarily come across as wanting to talk about it. I think that yeah, okay. I think that people who have something to say will be will have will have will, will say something quickly quicker in America because of a lot of that. What I just got done saying, which is that. If we are built on any premise, it's that people came here or people broke from Britain for the same reason, which was freedom. Mm. So you can say something. I'm against the President of the United States. You know, you could say that. You're not going to get, you know, like you would in the Soviet Union of old days or even in modern dictatorships. You get someone, you know, knocking on your door saying, we heard you're against the president. We don't get that. You don't get that here either. Mm. Um, but I think that... Uh, we tend to be um, we tend to be loud. I think I would I would agree that we're louder, um, but we also don't have the. You and I have talked about the queuing, how how process in Australia, 
really brings um, a discipline of of proper. What am I trying to say? Um, proper behavior, your proper etiquette. In America, it's really about oh, oh I can't be in this line. I have no time. I got to go around this line. And uh, and you know that's really in the north. In the south, I will say that there is definitely more etiquette and more more understanding of proper channels, proper behaviors. But um, and what I mean by proper, I mean just not rubbing up against someone the wrong way. Mm. There's a there's a concern over here for others where in America it seems that um, in every facet we group ourselves. You know, we're from this state, not from that state. Yeah, we are conservatives. We're not liberals. We're liberals. We're not conservatives. Would you say that we're with the, Trump? We're against Trump. Yeah, across the fifty states of the U.S., what you're saying is that um, there's um, yeah, quite big differences in the type of people. That's Where, it. Would you say Australia is more homogenous? Well, I believe I. I well, I mean, I think thirty million. You know, keeps it pretty close, but. I actually have seen. I'm very impressed with the diversity. Um, I I I don't. I, I I would need statistics to show me that it's homogenous. I I my personal experience is I see diversity off the charts here. But just to say the vibe of you spent time in Queensland, ACT, and now South Australia. Do you see notable differences? In those cities, I do, states. I do. I see it. I, I feel like I found a home here. Yeah. I think Adelaide just is wonderful. Um, Brisbane was so big that it doesn't matter. You know, you can call it Queensland, and I'm throwing air quotes up. You know, um, but I think it's just big. I think it's just big. In terms and, of driving around the city, I know I've got. I've had a few projects where oh, the cities are loop to loop kind of roads that yeah. you end up. Yeah, I think the, the mayor's doing a great job up there. Let me first say that. The who? The, the mayor up yeah. there. And uh, <clears throat> But with that, as- well, with that aside. The mayor or the premier? The Lord Mayor, yeah. Lord Mayor, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they've got a, they've got a, um, a younger quite guy, a yeah. large local government area in Brisbane. It's quite different to South Australia. Yeah, yeah. They're pretty much in charge of everything within, a, yeah. you know, within like an hour's distance, you know? Um, in fact, you still feel like you're in Brisbane until you hit the Sunshine Coast. Yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, but uh, but I, you know, my my feeling though is that you still see a difference. Um, what are some of those differences? I mean, my first reaction is, uh, I I feel like Queensland probably um, is trying to take care of. They're, they're concerned for a lot more people. Therefore, the policies. They've they've been described to me. This is not my not my term, but nanny like. But they have a lot of they have a lot of stuff they're managing. You know they really do, and they've got great public works going on. That river they have is wonderful. South Bank, I mean, South Bank has influenced the local communities to get into water parks, and they're all free. You know, and what's why should they be free? Because people need things to do in hot weather. You know, it's really hot up there, and they need a place to go that's not going to charge them fifty bucks for the day. You know, and I come down here, and um, I, you know, one thing that hit us was in that, Adelaide. Yeah, yeah, down here in Adelaide uh, is uh, that we I don't see the water parks as much, and uh, you know, I think we saw something downtown or something. But so, how would you describe the people of Adelaide? I got to be honest with you. I really felt like an op- 
open door, you know, uh, like um, they're interested in where I'm from. Yeah. In Queensland, not so much. Um, yeah. What's the vibe? What's, what's the general kind of cultural vibe of South Australia, Adelaide? Openness. Yeah. Opportunity. Um, I'm very much investment minded. You know, uh, if we put a dollar here, we want to see two come back. Yeah. You know, there's very little waste. Um, and the very and he, so when I say that there's no water parks, you guys also don't have twelve months of hot weather. You know, mm. I mean, there's reasons for the differences. We've got a long stretch of beach as well. So, huh? We've got a long stretch of beach. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. And I got to be honest with you, I think it rivals the Gold Coast. But that's coming from an American. Don't don't mean much for me, except the fact that I lived an hour from the Gold Coast and I live eleven minutes from uh, Henley. Mm-hmm. So I. I, I love the beaches here. Um, I, I was married on Glenelg. So, you know, I'm a little bit partial to that. And uh, I actually put a post up the other day of my children playing and saying, you know, it was 18 years ago, you know, uh, this December that, yeah, I was married at, at the uh, Catholic Church at Glenelg. And then we, were, we had a reception over the Stanford. And, you know... I, I, how would I know as an American that 18 years later I'd be here with my children playing up and down the boardwalk? You know, the, the path, the car, the, the, the bike path. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I thought it was wonderful because life is poetry. You know, life is poetry. If you sit back and you allow it to, to express itself, you will see that um, life does deliver. Yeah, life, yeah. life does bring on that equity you're looking for. It just may not look like what you thought it looked like but if you just take a second and you'll see i have i have two human beings here that weren't here 18 years ago that uh that are enjoying themselves and they're full of love and um and i I am separated from my partner but she and i are great co-parents and uh everything we do every day is 100 percent about them Mm. i'm going to come back to this point there's one, one point just about the difference between us and and australia i just wanted to cover before and i feel like i'd be remiss not to cover it is that sort of sense of against freedom again freedom and opportunity i think that's been really fascinating my sense in the us is that there is clearly the haves and the have-nots because there's not as much of an economic safety net um there's the haves and the have-nots so and this is me from an outsider's perspective i'll see documentaries that from time to time of say more trailer parks or or someone that kind of doesn't is, is unemployed and they'll rock up to a factory and they'll pick five people from the crowd of people looking for work um, and and they'll um, and they'll and the others have to just go back home because they're, they're unemployed and there's probably not that safety net. But there's still is there still that sense of opportunity there? And you can go to the other extreme where you you see the presidential race. Uh, you've got Trump. Um, has his quirks and is, is couldn't get anyone more different to Obama, the pre, previous president, and then you've got his running mate or his, his competition in the coming election as Biden. Sort of similar age groups in there. In Australia, you'd be well and truly retired and probably living near the beach, and and you need a lot of money. It sounds like you need to be very very wealthy to um, to run for president. Where Australia maybe doesn't seem to have. The, as big a gap between the haves and the have-nots? Maybe it, maybe it does. Maybe those cracks are there. What, how do you kind of, I guess, reconcile that sort of the, the big divide between, the, say, the, the, ver- the, the uber-wealthy and the, 
extremely poor. Like, how does that kind of? Yeah, I mean, look, I you're talking to a guy who came from extremely poor, mm. you know. But I can tell you that the lesson of taking from somebody else's motivation to create opportunity, create more opportunity for themselves, only demotivates them. Therefore, you know, you created possibly two poor people because government policy comes in to demotivate those who are successful. Uh, the lesson that's coming, look, I, I have a lot of friends. I had a, I had a small business. The lesson that's coming out of uh, modern times uh, is quite honestly, um, why, why, why employ people? Please give me, give me an incentive to employ people. Well, because you're going to get rich. Really? I don't think that that's so sure. In fact, ask anybody who's run a restaurant. It took them three or four times to get it right. Mm. So people usually lose their shirt for a while, and then they make money. When you do the law of averages, they're making a living. So I think that what we have to do is opportunity is doesn't doesn't uh, look opportunity is not going to come from somebody propping you up. Opportunity is what you do with what you've been given. Whether it's wealth or it's a it's a government check or whatever, what are you going to do with that next? Does the society, does the society's policies ingratiate motivation hmm. for you to get out of that first step into the next step? Saving them is not the end game. It should be an investment. It should be an investment to make sure they don't fall through the cracks. Um, I believe opportunity comes from. When we realize that if we don't jump, okay, that you know that we could get taken by the by the tide, that we need to jump, we need to we need to risk, we need to believe in ourselves, and if we don't, I think that that there's you know there's also institutions that are non governmental too, you know I mean there used to be a time in which we would talk to our pastor or our our minister you know our our our, our priest. Um, all of that's been taken over by you know agencies that believe that they have the same moral uh, uh, credibility and look they probably all have the same intention but churches have been around for centuries mm. you know when people are having marital problems you know uh, institutions that were homegrown in the communities used to be what helped keep things together because everybody has problems. You know, um, but now we have therapy, and now you know that comes at so much dollars per hour. And you know, and in order to go to, in order to have a two-person home working, we need daycare now. So now that's the the thing that we have to pay for. I think at the end of the day, I think opportunity has got to come from what are we doing with our public investment? Are we helping them get to that mm. next step? If the, if we are, then we'll get it back. We'll get that investment back. So is that almost helping, like, clearly there must be some people that feel feel victimised in that world that they're, I don't know, they're I don't know, generations of unemployment or whatever, but it's, it almost get that sense that is there a, an overarching kind of sense of helping those who want to help themselves, like, so those who can almost... Yeah, that's of, it. You know, I mean... I don't like to say in America because, like I said, there's 50 mm. different states. You know, but from the philosophy and the experience of a New Englander, we want to make sure people don't fall through the cracks. Okay? But we also don't want to create generations of dependency. So what do we do? How do we do it? 
And we also don't want to be in charge of their lives. I mean, freedom can't be the cost. This is the entire reason for the establishment of that country and that state is freedom is, is, is the investment. So we can't nix freedom for a cash payment. However, the public does want accountability on what it's spending. So how do you manage all this? You know, um, lots of people have gone after, uh, you know, the Koch brothers, you know, because they're this, that, and the other thing, uh, because they usually don't agree with them, you know, although they don't say anything against George Soros. Fact is, Koch brothers right now are trying to figure out how to fight hunger. They're trying to spend their money trying to figure out how to give up. The Koch brothers, yeah. So Charles and David Koch, um, yeah, the Koch brothers, yeah, they are uh, uh, oil, uh, uh, if you will, you know, company, the the company that research and does a lot of uh, exploration in that that industry. But they have all kinds of stuff, you know, going on, and they're billionaires, and they have invested in being the. um, loyal opposition to, to uh, George Bush and um, and Obama. They actually formed their group called the Freedom Network because they thought George Bush was spending too much money. Now, just for transparency, I like George W. Bush. Uh, I, I met him a couple times, and I, I like him, okay? But you can't be 100% in the corner with anybody. You're going to have your way of thinking, and sometimes you'll separate yourself from those you admire. And the Koch's and uh, and George Bush disagreed on what was happening to the government. It was really, really growing really fast. So they were the loyal opposition. They spent a lot of money in a group called the Freedom Partners to try to make um, groups like Americans for Prosperity, uh, Concerned Veterans for America, which I worked for, to give a voice to veterans who were being lost in the shuffle of Veterans Affairs, and um, you know the VA. And honestly... They were doing a lot of good work. Well, now they, I believe they divested themselves uh, of a majority of their political work and they're now trying to go after humanitarian, uh, you know, causes like hunger and education and opportunity by teaching that opportunity is in here. I'm pointing at my chest. You know, um, what can we do to foster that? I think you definitely, when somebody can't do for themselves, you need to help them. And I would, if I was the administrator of a church or if I was the administrator of an agency, I would believe that. But both the congregation and the taxpayers would have an account, they have accountability. We have to figure out, are we helping them get to that next step? And in America, we're always trying to make sure that we, we know why the investment's being made, you know, and then we help them get there. But you can't do it at the cost of freedom. You know, so, you know, my state's 1.3 million. We don't have a large tax base, so therefore we don't have a large pool to give. Um, so it tends to get really rocky about how much we're spending on public services. And in New Hampshire, it becomes, you know, just a huge debate, you know, um, spending more than we take in because our hearts are bigger than our wallets. And uh, and so there's always a, a public accountability that, that goes on. Mm. So it's so that you can't you can't do it all. Like our Australia's health system is more supportive across across the board. Where you hear um, more haves and have not in the health system or the social welfare system, but it's more about that complexity around in the US around what do we fund, what don't we fund? Yeah, and at what cost is their freedom to 
Yeah, I mean, remember, we have, we have, you guys have council rates, we have annual taxes. I believe our annual taxes go through, are large, are large and exponentially larger than your council rates. So, you know, depending on how your city is spending will be how much your, your taxes are going to be this year. And if you don't pay your taxes, you, you lose the property. So if you spent 20 years paying off a mortgage on a property, we may not have Queen's title, but we do have a local city council that is passing rates. And if you can't pay it, they will auction your house off and you lose your home. So the biggest concern we have in, in America is, okay, great, we, we take care of people who, who, need, uh, who need support. But that 78-year-old man or woman or both living in a house that they paid off, they may even have built it can't keep up with a $4,000 annual, you know, uh, annual tax rate. So what do you do? You know? Um, uh, and that's why, that's obviously why we get very concerned about spending, you know, because the only, the only way to tax is on income and property. Mm-hmm. We, we can also have sales taxes as well. Um, my state doesn't have an income tax. It does not have a sales tax. Has neither. You can shop for free in New Hampshire. In fact, our governor took on the uh, the laws of the internet. We have this internet taxation policy, and he's like, "Well, he goes, someone buys something here, we're not collecting a tax." Federal government doesn't have a mechanism. You have to remember too that the federal government doesn't doesn't exist amongst the fifty states. They are they are a concept. They are an agreement. You know, but that's all they are. They aren't a place. Mm-hmm. So once they pass laws in, in Washington, it like I said to you earlier, you have 50 lanes of distribution. And what does it look like when you pass a law in Washington? Now we're going to, you know, what you know, what was it? We were going to have a war on poverty with LBJ, you know? War on poverty, yeah, but he has to work with 50 different legislatures. Just because he passes something doesn't mean it's going to get, it's going to get, Distributed the way that he wants, yeah. and that's the beauty of a federal or a shared system of powers. Sharing means just because you pass a law doesn't mean that you don't have to do something for me. Yeah, you, know, you might pass the law, but for me to take that law on, you got to do that. You got to take care of my my elderly, or you got to take care of uh, nursing yeah. homes, or whatever. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, and that's what federal means. Yeah. People tend to believe federal means like uh, you know supreme. Yeah. The U.S. Um, another difference between U.S. and Australia potentially is, well, don't you look at the um, the top listed companies, and they tend to be tech companies or growth companies, where we we, we tend to have banks and mining. There's one. Um, yeah, yeah. One in Australia, there's there's, there's one um, uh, one bio kind of tech company as well, but but it tends to be tend to mining and and banking tend to be the larger groups in in Australia, where the U.S. is is more about tech, and then. I guess moving on from that, that sort of philanthropic giving in the US. So I'm on, I'm on an arts board in the US. You join an arts board and it's just given that you've got a bit of money and you, you invest into the arts. The, the, that, that giving kind of helps to support the arts sector. Without that, that giving and those donations, yeah. the arts sector in the US would likely not, not survive, where Australia, the arts arguably obviously relies on donations and, and giving and it's really important. Um, but there is also government fund funding as well. Yeah. Um, but is again, Australia? Let me just ask this question. Yeah, pose okay. this question: Is Australia reflecting the reality of a thirty million population 
rather than a 320 million might, might population. Be. Yeah, maybe. I mean, once you get into 320 million, you, you have a lot more opinions. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, know? exactly. That's you right. And, and bringing that, that, that attitude to giving in the U.S. and then that entrepreneurship you hear about, like um, you touched on it before with the, um, the, 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 the Coke family. Is it family? The, yeah. Coke brothers. Coke yeah. brothers, yeah. yeah. Um, and like you talk about the uh, Bill and Belinda Gates Foundation and, right. and a few others where they've just made heaps of money and they get to that point where they've made so much money, they go, well, what can we do to... To, to um, better the, to, our world, yeah. So it's not just government funding cropping, propping up yep. different things in the US and beyond. It's actually that, that, that I guess you could say, corporate giving. You sort of comment on that of what the role that those those organisations play in the US, so that, that attitude to giving. Well, I personally that believe that, you know, if, if a nation fostered the freedom by which you were born out of, the ability to create... Just the ability to come up with an idea and not ask the state for permission to move forward with your idea. I mean, believe it or not, that's a huge obstacle to a lot of countries and a lot of people. In America, if you are born with that freedom, you should be rewarding that freedom. Okay, but that's called being a corporate citizen. Mm. Okay, do I think that extends against their bottom line? You know, like things like, you know, we're going to need you to contribute to climate change, you know? Well... Okay, if you if in your production line you're somehow hurting the climate, then I think that you know obviously you should find a way to to not hurt our our environment. But that's not how it's done. It's a social pressure. You know, well, you know, this company does not give to climate change. You know, <laughs> does not mm-hmm. give to relieving. I mean, it becomes uh, when you let government and you let political players. Um, start to be, I used the word before, pervasive uh, in their bullying. I mean, if government gives to the arts, why should anybody give? That's the, that's the opposite reaction mm. in Australia. Now, you may still have them both giving. I'm not saying they're not. I'm not creating a either or. But in America, you know, they can lead by example by saying, well, listen, you know, if we're giving to the arts, why do we have to run this by the National Endowment of the Arts, you know, in order to get a grant. We're, we're taking up 85% of the pool. You're giving, you're kicking out a small grant. We should have majority say, right? But the fact is, is that anything in America that has public accountability has a public accountability. You know, the reason you see sports figures pulled up before Congress is because they're protected by Congress on, on taxation and market. So Congress has to be sure it's monitoring the behavior, in, that they're not endorsing a behavior that they that they like the laws of the land, like drugs, you know, performance enhanced drugs. So I would say that when you when you take a look at whether government gives or a, you know big corporate players give, somebody's playing the heavy, and they're going to set the agenda. And so in that, a way, they're sort of that those let's say wealthy people with money. Giving back to the community on society, it's in some ways it's about it's controlling the agenda. Oh, it is yeah. absolutely. So it's not just about a philosophy of saying, "Well, we need to support our community and give back to the." No, community. that could be a, that could be a motivation, right? But the reality is, you have to govern that output with others. And if you're Bill and Melinda Gates, I'd suggest that 
they probably come in with an agenda that's prescribed on the money that they have. Yeah, okay. It's not just, it's not... um, Hey, you're going to save the environment, here's a check. No. How are you going to save the environment? What exactly are you doing with the money? And that all comes, that agenda comes from accountability, Mm. you know, which is definitely an American... The culture of accountability is very strong. Or... It's not just out of the goodness of our heart. that's, That's right. And trust me, I, you know, have been... I have I have been inside of conversations where, you know, somebody who believes stronger than somebody else, somebody who is, and then we see this in all kinds of environments, in government, in in, in, in corporate, and at the bus line. Okay, somebody who has a louder voice, who has more resources, um, is going to attempt to hijack the agenda, whatever it is, um, and then people start to feel disenfranchised. So if the if the agenda is hijacked by government, then private sector will feel, well, you know, why do we need to be involved? We're, we're not involved, then we're not involved. You know, um, but when you have an environment that tries to do public-private partnerships, then you find yourself where there's equity. We can't do it all here on the taxpayer dime. We we need you to give. But then people with political agendas don't like the players that signed up because they don't like who they are. So then they start to embarrass members of that particular commission or that, that public-private partnership. You see, that, that definitely would be a disease, um, and, and I'm a political consultant, but it's a disease by which People can't just play with limited agendas. They got to play with, I've said it before, pervasive agendas, ones that the output matters more than how they got there. Mm. You know, um, we're seeing people go into restaurants and be violent against them because of their skin color. You know, this was opposite. You know, at one time, and we passed laws to say you can't do it. There are laws you can't do it. It's just that people are afraid to offend, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy to not have seen that behavior over here. Um, but in America, I'm very scared that, uh, that we're letting political agendas dictate our behavior. Uh, we should still have, as you and I talked about earlier, you know, that, 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 the etiquette. You know, there's no reason for you to be rude to someone in front of you. You don't know their story. You don't know where they're coming from. You don't. All you know is that you have to share a space with them. And if COVID has taught us any anything, is back off. Don't get up in my face more. So the irony of all the riots and all the violence that you've seen, the irony during COVID, I think COVID had a lot to do with that. But um, but nonetheless, everybody has a right to express their opinions, but they don't have a right to trespass mm. on others. And um, I haven't seen any of that here. Mm. I have. It does feel like that that. That friction in the U.S., though, isn't it? it, it does does is that it sense does. That people a are snapping there? at each other over masks. You know, if you don't have a mask and you do have a mask, uh, usually the one who has the mask chirps at someone who doesn't. Mm. Um, like a self empowered, and it's a freedom of choice to a certain. Is that yeah, right? and honestly, the, what they don't understand is that the mask protects others. It doesn't protect you, but they think there's a sense of. Um, I'm doing the right thing. Why aren't you? That's social pressure. And, um, you know, when a, when a, when a, a politician doesn't put a mask on, uh, 
he gets written up in the in the journalist mm. you know in the in the news i got to tell you should you be held accountable public accountability you know uh, should you be a part of that yes but if we're going to do that we should do it everywhere we should do it with everything we shouldn't pick and choose based on who the bully is you know and um and that's that's i unfortunately it's the bullies that seem to be carrying the message um of opinion and um i don't get that sense here i don't um but it's that that's like things like in the u.s where it it is that that friction and there is that kind of yeah like that social friction divide. i don't see but even here. things like gun yeah. law, like there's just seems to be so many things where it it feels like where when they're like I'll, I'll kind of be wrong for me to not get your perspective on trump in the coming election but like trump seems to kind of almost sort of be helping to ignite that friction he's 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 not afraid of a bit of friction well no i mean i think that uh you know he quite honestly comes into the ultimate expression of 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 freedom he he's he actually has changed the way one becomes a, a president there's a whole um a whole story on it i saw i saw here a couple of weeks ago maybe a week ago um about how if you're not an expert of social media, you won't become president after the Trump years. One thing you should learn is that the president now speaks directly through social media. Do you like it? Do you not like it? That's irrelevant. It's absolutely irrelevant. The dynamic is now there. No longer does, does the president exercise a gatekeeper. He has got his, you know, his phone like everybody else and he shares his opinion like everybody else. Do you like it? Do you not like it? doesn't matter. The effect is there. So therefore we start to debate whether I should know about it every day. I'm not used to hearing from the president mm. every day, you know. Um, however, that is still now a new dynamic that every, it's kind of like Kennedy and Nixon with the TV, Trump with the social media, you know. Obama and, and W and Clinton did nothing with with what, I mean, Nothing compared to what we've done here. Mm -hmm. I'm not taking away from them. I'm just saying that President, you know, calling out the North Korean, um, you know, dictator over stuff on on tweet. It's just something we're not used to. But how do you make sense of it from an outsider's perspective? Of he like Trump is is funny if it wasn't real sometimes where. He'll kind of make a comment and you'll go, did he see that? <laughs> like yeah. that, that fake news or what does it say? He's now immune yeah. to COVID and you're going, or what was it, drinking um, disinfectant was one of his sort of things early on. And um, He's also yeah. the most covered. I believe he's, the, he, I, th- I think he's been considered the most covered president. Um, most covered. Covered, like just uh, he, has, he has the most exposure yeah. in media than ever before. So do you think that's intentional of being a bit, well, not a bit, been a lot sort of... Um, um, I guess. Um, well, think it? about having it. a bit of friction in that kind of allows that him to kind of remain in the media and well, have that. Well, discussion. think about it. The establishment, okay, uh, the political establishment of America, backed Hillary Clinton. Hmm. They backed Biden being vice president. Okay, um, that you know the point is uh, they didn't they didn't invite Donald Trump to the table, and he was the challenger. He's not stopped being the challenger since he was elected. He has not been allowed any honeymoon. Um, whether you disagree or agree with him, 
you still have, like I said earlier, you have to respect the opinion of someone across from you. You don't have to agree. We don't have to agree. I mean, let's get rid of, I'm not saying we agree. Well, we have to respect that we believe in freedom before we believe in ourselves. We believe in the freedom that someone should exist. Mm-hmm. So he should be respected for the for the office he has. You don't have to like him, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but definitely should be respected so that you can start listening to what he is saying so that you can debate him if you dis- if you disagree yeah, yeah. or you can agree with him if you agree. But, you know, we just had, I, I just read something on Facebook, uh, and you got to be careful. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's, uh, I'm not in Colorado, but I read that someone went up to a pro-Trump rally and, and shot somebody in the head. Now, this guy, I don't know his situation, and I don't think it was a political thing. I think it was mental illness, as it is with a lot of our, our drug, vi- our um, gun violence. Um, but this is where people are being afraid to express themselves. Mm. Um, because violence erupts out of disagreement, and mm. uh, you know, honestly, I thought was what was supposed to come out of the '60s was tolerance. Whether you agree or disagree, tolerance. Allow another view at the table. Don't tell us. Don't spoon feed us. You know, um, and I'm, unfortunately, I'm seeing that if you're not, if you are not in the prevailing wind of opinion, you're lit up for everything. On social media, on on the you know, on the T V. If you if you disagree with what's going on, um, I, I watched a great movie the other uh, the other night, Vice, about Dick Cheney. And I did an event with Dick Cheney, okay, and um, what this guy was talking about, I mean it was totally slanted and it was a major motion picture. Totally slanted. It would have been called propaganda at another time, but we call it a movie. Mm. And the fact is, is that he surmises that Fox News came out of um, uh, came out of advocacy uh, media. It didn't. Ted Turner formed CNN out of the idea of advocacy media in the twenty four hour uh, news cycle. He actually wrote about it in the eighties. I was in high school. And we read about advocacy media by Ted Turner and how we have to start saying what should happen rather than report, just report on what's happening. Mm. But you see, there's no balance to that. Nobody cares about balance. So when I'm watching this movie and I know the truth, I'm sitting here saying, wow, there's a lot of people that are going to think that Fox News was founded on the idea that we should start advocating for our position. No, you know, our position, meaning the position that Roger Ailes stood for in Fox News was answering an agenda that was already underway and happening by their own admission, at least from CNN. Mm-hmm. And the sad part is is that we're not getting the full gamut of truth. We're not getting the two sides. Where, you know, In school, it was the primary and secondary source material. Before we printed something, we had to be responsible with what we were saying. And it just seems like this, uh, that our current society only demands you to echo the prevailing wind. Yeah, okay. Um, just after the, the election that Trump won, um, an author, American author, Brett Easton Ellis, has got a podcast, and I remember hearing a line that he used that he was getting frustrated going to dinner parties and everybody would be, be bemoaning the fact that Trump got in. But whether there's lots of debate around the system and, and, and et cetera. But he said, well, he got in, he's got the role, we just have to kind of accept that. And 
and it was he um was it was I guess it was an interesting one and it was very much I guess the observation of going well um Hillary got more votes Trump got in it's all about obviously that's not how elections work but um and I guess there's very much about east west um more democratic as, as I understand it and and center sure. of US is probably more maybe more Trump supporting is that like what, what's I mean Look, the major areas, you know, are going to have super hyper concentrations of city agendas. The city agenda is not shared by the suburban agenda or by the, the definitely the rural agenda. And that's how I would look at it. I wouldn't look at East-West. I yeah, would say okay. that, that what you have, um, you can't have the people of New York City, San Francisco, Dallas, Miami, and Chicago, and New York running the country. You just can't, you know. I mean, just because they multiply their their belief systems, that their perspective is that we have to do more. We have to have more subways. We have to take care of more homeless. We have to do this. That's not the agendas of the people that are living outside of those communities. And you don't want to alienate those people because more than likely they are the people that are making decisions for jobs. So you have this rural versus urban, which we've had for a long time. Um, but if you do. First off, we don't have a national election. You know, we have an electoral college. So I think that what people have to understand is, as we have said, economically and socially, we have 50 different kingdoms. We also have, politically, 50 different kingdoms. If a lot of people want to live in L.A., they're not going to hijack. They can hijack California all they want, but they shouldn't hijack Maryland. And that is the concern. And that was the concern why they formed the electoral college. They wanted the ability for everybody to have a voice from their culture, not from this. Um, there's a term for uh, when you know this, you know this Darwin and this Darwin electorate. You know where you know you're you're gonna change because you know the 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 mob rule says. You know, um, honestly, uh, all of New England can barely can barely keep up with. New York City in votes. Our entire, we have six states in New England. <laughs> okay, six different ways of living. And we can barely keep up with those who believe in the way that New York City wants to govern and live. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a city that tried to, you know, outlaw soft drinks or donuts or mm. something. Okay, well, you know, that's the kind of thing that you have to think about. It's, it's not one man, one vote. It never was. You know, it was... You live in New York. State of New York has this many electoral college votes to, to gift towards the presidency. That's the system. If they want to change the system, they're changing the presidency. You know, and, um, and being from a state like New Hampshire, we only have four electoral votes. So out of 260-some-odd that you need to win, four don't necessarily come into the mix, mm. you know, as far as plurality goes. Yeah, okay. So... Yeah, so when you get to sort of, is is Trump just playing it? Like obviously the the, the polling is saying that Biden is is in in front, but Trump still has some good strong support. Well, just remember, I mean, you you know this yeah. better than I do. You know, polls are taken by people who will take them. Yeah. Okay. So where are they coming from? We got we we kicked off this conversation by perspective. So those who want to have their voices heard, you know. And there are those who mistrust. A lot of Trump voters mistrust the media. 
So when the media calls their home, says we'd like you to take a poll, they hang up. They they don't care to share. They don't want to share. Mm. For There's years, my business who I vote for. And- yeah, exactly. That goes back to, uh, first off, goes back to culture here. <clears throat> when I first lived here in 0304, I was told how difficult it was to poll people wanting to share their opinion. So I used to be, I used to, I was told that the uh, margin of error was so great that you, you know, you really couldn't come into a conclusion here. Well, that's happening in America now where people who want to change the system are going to take the survey. Mm-hmm. People who are fine with what's happened with, with what's going on ever since the days of Reagan, you know, we've called it the silent majority. They're just not going to, they're not going to bother to tell you. And honestly, information is shared and purchased and sold so much that people in America are very, you know, I don't care where you're from in America, they're very aware that anything they say is now going to lead to some, you know, uh, gauntlet of magazine subscriptions that you'll ask to join. So so, so you would say it's much closer, the election is much closer than the polls might suggest. Absolutely. I got to tell you, you know, every time that the media talks about, and I mean this, I mean the major, the major three, ABC, CBS, they all report, you know, how, um, how Trump has thousands of people, you know, showing up and they're not wearing masks or whatever they're saying. Look at the fact that thousands of people are showing up. That tells you that there are legs connected to bodies, connected to arms that are going to vote. Those people are going to show up. Mm. They're going to show up. They're showing up. At a stadium, they're showing up at the polls. Yeah. So, just be, I want to move on to another point, but says, what's a, an essence of how people can make sense and find goodness in Trump? Like, from an outsider's perspective, obviously, it, it does seem. Not my. I, I mean, I wouldn't. I, that means that I have. Yeah, but you must, I, have, a, not, you must have a political observation about what he's trying to do, what his motivation is, or what. Whether what I he's think, providing for the economy or yeah, I think the fact that you know we've had the best economy in fifty years and then COVID hits makes a disingenuous argument of of the left to say that we have a recession. We don't have a recession. No, we have we have man made rules that are keeping us socially distant and keeping us from from magnifying a disease. It does not mean that there's not capital already earmarked to to spend. There is. There, there are manufacturing belts ready to go on as soon as we can put on more people. You know, there, there are jobs that are happening right now in America that they're getting up and going, but people are trying to politicize, if you will, everything that he does. Therefore, when you keep chirping at the leader of your organization, you're making him too busy to be effective. At least you're trying to. I think he's been, he's been brilliant in his, in his discipline to message. For somebody who does market research, you've got to say to yourself, the guy knows his message. Mm. I mean, you know, I have plenty of clients that I just can't get them to, you know, they, they have to listen to what the people want, not necessarily what they want. <laughs> Politician always wants to just keep talking. Mm. Um, I would say that... So he's got strength in his own perspective, even if his own perspective sometimes seems crazy. I mean, confidence, confidence uh, and honestly, even when he gets... even. And, you know, I'm sitting here sounding like, uh, you know, a, a Trump, you know, um, you know, surrogate, you know, and I'm not. I have no relationship to the Trump administration. Um, I know people there, you know, uh, but my personal opinion is that uh, that if you if you want a country in a direction to go in a certain direction, 
you're going to choose either the direction towards more innovation and more in public investment um, with Trump, you know, uh, just buy-in to getting up. What's the first thing that Bush said when we had 9-11 was start buying American right now. We have to we have to we have to support each other right now. Yeah. Okay. okay. So my point is is that Biden offers a convoluted message, one that tells you that it's okay to hide in your bunker. Well, look, there's one thing we demand from our leaders is that you've got to be out and about, and you've got to be showing people what it is that a leader a leader should be out there. If you feel that people should be at home, then a leader should be out there telling you to be at home. I don't feel that Biden um, has led by example as to how to get beyond the nightmare. I think he he's living the nightmare personally. Um, but even when the president had COVID, you know, he's like, like I have the best doctors. I, I have the best uh, advice being given to me. And just because people are arguing that he's not following it, they don't know what he's doing. They're just, again, they're just throwing stuff at him to disrupt him because we're in the middle of a presidential season. Mm. And we are going to decide on November 3rd who's going to continue, regardless of what our opinions are of either of them. One of them is going to emerge, and then in January they're going to take the oath, and then we're going to have to live with that reality, whoever that is. I think he's showing everybody what his reality is. I think that Biden is not. I think Biden has failed to put together a, a, a cohesive message for his base. And I think that every time that he tries to get out past his base, his base drags him back into the, uh, into the trench. Mm. And again, clarity of message. So I think the, yeah, the I mean, I don't Australian think he... federal uh, election, uh, most recent one, it was yeah, Labor was definitely going to win, and, and they lost. And then the argument was that their their message was too confused. And it oh, like, I I was driving down. I lived in Brisbane. I was driving down. I saw a billboard. It said, uh, "Is it this is the bill we can't afford?" Was the message? Look, I mean, it says everything in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah about Bill Shorten. Yeah. It said everything. Okay, so if I was if I was confused. I'd be looking at it saying, okay, now I understand. Yeah, too much change. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's you know, I mean, geez. I mean, they, they, had, they had like a daily program every day. Not that I'm, I'm not getting, <laughs> I'm not necessarily getting involved in that fight, but I can say that it was clarity of message. And you understand the impact here, uh, Square Holes, you understand the impact of clarity of message. Mm. You, you may have people that don't like it, but that's okay. We don't, you know, Donald Trump, isn't obviously a politician that um, and an entrepreneur who understands market segments. He gets it. He goes out and he talks to the market segment that's listening to him. He tries to influence people saying, listen, come along with us. I gave you the best economy, the best economy you've ever seen in 50 years, Unempl- lowest unemployment. I, I, it was spurred on by tax cuts. My ingredients worked. Their ingredients was... When I was shutting down um, flights to China, they said I was overprotective, that I was too extreme. That's what they said about everything that I've said. You know, so as I as I listen to the president, I think he has monitored his public policy in a masterful way. He's gotten so much done, um, but unfortunately, we unfortunately the the agenda. Is um, with the 
with the political establishment that don't seem to agree with his moves. Um, but he's the president. It's like, you know, it's like the gentleman you said, we've got to move on. What we say, we try to say there's a time for politics and time for governing. The Democrat left have, have never gone into governing. They, have, they just haven't. Um, the entire time that they've been in charge, they've been talking about either special interest money or they want to give – and this is American left, by the way, mm-hmm. different than here. But the American left has talked about impeachment because they don't like them or giving to the special interests that, that they agree and aren't, aren't – aren't, they're not nonprofits. This is not an abortion guns argument. This is like, you know, like the, 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 the giving to the arts in the middle of COVID. Mm. Just – just blows taxpayers' minds as to what's going on there. Mm. And now we, have, we just had a, a vote by Congress against what's called qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is a very big deal right now. It is how a, a police officer governs himself on the street with the backing of the government by everything he does, even if he makes a mistake. They voted in the House against qualified immunity, which basically if you're a police officer – and you don't get qualified immunity, you're not going out on the street because you're not going to – if you make a mistake, you're held up at the same, yeah, at the same at, level. At an individual level. Yeah. So, yeah. so that, that kind of issue is where the base is controlling the BLM agenda, is controlling the national agenda. All right. Let's come back to Adelaide. So you're living – I'm very new here, so – Very new, but um, – and you sort of did share some perspectives there and it – to me, it feels very Australia widely, and then Adelaide um, included, but probably especially to, in many ways. It's a lifestyle city. It's very comfortable. It's very easy. I don't think we feel like we've got a huge amount of chaos or anything. It's not right. not not necessarily. Free. Is that your ob- like? Are we oh, we calmer, easier. I think the people more here open. Are, oh, I think the people here are wonderful. How do you balance? One of the things in our, a lot of our research has shown across Australia and. And South Australia, that lifestyle aspects second to none. It's just so easy, so just an easy lifestyle, and we've got a great art sector, and we've got the the, the hills you can and hills and the beach in, in Adelaide, a very long uh, city for those people listening who aren't from Australia. Um, you can go from the hills to the beach in about fifteen kilometres. So if you if you were so inclined, you could walk or run or or ride your bike, which is is, is quite unique. So it's got a, a wonderful lifestyle. The economy and jobs, and we're doing some great things, and, and, and that's we're going the right direction in many ways. But it's something that is, has eluded South Australia. What, what do you have an observation of? How does a place like South Australia, Adelaide, grow on a global context? Maybe access the US, or grow, how, how do they how do they grow? How do they leverage well, I think wonderful this- lifestyle and grow an economy? Yeah, well, first off, I think we have to see one thing COVID taught us is it doesn't matter where you live. You, you, can, you can grow on the internet. You mm-hmm. can grow virtually. So I think it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for, look, travel now is becoming optional, you know, because it's definitely not demanded. You know, we're definitely away from that now. Um, so the optional idea of where you're located versus your other cities doesn't matter anymore. You know, you're Australian, you know, um, and then you export, if you will, the, the cultural effects of how you've been isolated yourselves, regardless of COVID. You've been in the shadow, the direct shadow of Melbourne, 
You've been in the distant shadow of uh, tourist states like Queensland. You know, the fact is, is you, you, I mean, the number one, what I heard in Brisbane was this is called a sleepy town. I would say this is a secret. And in the, in the best way to market that is by saying, shh, don't tell anyone. You know, and I think I've, I might have come across that, you know, with others, that that's what I, I feel like here. I mean, you go to Semaphore, sure, the homes are expensive right up until the, um, until the beach. They're expensive. But they're not what you would find in Sydney, Melbourne, or Brisbane. They are not the costs of the, they are reasonable costs, you know, and they're beautiful. Even on the coast, yeah. Yeah, even on the coast. So it's like you've you've been given this opportunity to show, you know, middle class Australia how to have the dream if that is their dream, in fact. Um, but you don't go that far. Go a couple kilometers inland, past the little uh, the port. You know, get you get on the inside there, and there's there's hardworking people who own property. You know, um, I, I think it's it shows an ability to live in paradise. That's what I because I think Australia is paradise. I personally do. So how do you? But that again, that that lifestyle aspect is very strong, and there are jobs and people people are um, going well in the economy. But there's still we're one million people in Adelaide. Yeah, one point five, one point six across the whole of South Australia. South Australia is 153% the size of France in land size, 3% of the population. So just like, do you, like I know that I, I agree with what you've said about it. You can grow a business from anywhere. Just just a kind of just a, I guess, a brief kind of thought as we kind of finish up the discussion. Is that like... If you like, a, a, let's say a brand. I one of the, I guess one of my areas of interest recently is going. How do we grow over the next decade? How do we grow more, less Australian or, or South Australian food, wine, beer? A lot of I've got a, a tech. Uh, we do work for Red Arc and and Hague's and groups. So how, how do we grow more of those brands? But they they come, and that, let's say global. Some of them might oh, well, be global. Uh, how, know, what would you do? Yeah, the thing that comes to mind is first off, it's not Adelaide; it's South Australia. Yeah. So you already get the Australian brand going for you. You know, you get the South Australia going and you market that. And then you basically say, hey, listen, you don't have to be here, but you want to be here. So the idea that you can sell from anywhere, you still have to live somewhere. Mm. Live here. You know, yeah. let me tell you the attributes. I mean, I haven't, been, I haven't been to the wine country. I was there on my honeymoon 18 years ago. Uh, we went to Penfolds is what memory I have. Um, and I still look for the blue wine bottle that 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 we tasted, but uh, but the fact is is that handoff has grown. It's all grown since I was here, mm-hmm. so I can't wait to get out there. That's still an area. Then you've got the mountains where people live in, and you've got the 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 coast, um, the south coast there, the Nuralunga, you know, and all that. And uh, people are telling me about how there's a ship that there's a there's a shipwreck that's in the water. You got to scuba dive to it. You know, and I got to tell you, man, I mean, on Friday afternoon, all the schoolies are out there right after school hanging out. I mean, what a culture. What a great thing. Um, You know, and then the buildup. You see, what's beautiful is that you didn't build it up. You put a bike path, which is Mm. human energy. On the coast, yeah. Yeah, it's human energy. So now you you still built it up, but you built it up. 
to harness activity. Yeah. You know, one of our key sectors is is wine, and so and a hundred year plus uh, wineries in Barossa, McLaren Vale, Coonawarra, uh, Clare, uh, and, and Adelaide Hills. They're yeah, it's a, uh, good, strong. I think I don't have the stat in my head, but the majority, clear majority of premium wine in Australia is uh, is produced in South Australia. Yeah. Uh, things are changing. China's been a bit tricky recently, um, yeah. um, and, and meaning that the China is a is less of an attractive export market than maybe what it was. So a lot of effort's gone into to China, and some yeah. of my discussions with people in the wine industry have been that China is is by and large one country. It's not like where from some of the discussion yeah. today, yeah. the US is fifty countries right. very right. very well. So how would a wine company that Oh. Suddenly goes. I want to. We need to grow. We can't just rely on domestic, which a lot of the wine businesses are yeah. going. China's been closed off, maybe. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be more domestically focused. Let's say they want to get into the US. What would you do? Because I, I oh, understand there's, there's, there's legal ex- experts that can that can know the differences between one state and another. That's kind well, of the a, enthusiasts, the wine enthusiasts. I mean, there's a great movie with Paul Giamatti called Sideways. Hmm. And uh, you should see it. Yeah, I've seen a, it. Yeah. yeah, so how that culture is tied into... Around the, the Napa Valley, isn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're, they're tied into the virtues of making wine, right? Well, we gotta, we, we have to become... We ha- First off, uh, I would say that we have to export what our virtues are in making wine. Because we hear about, you know, how the how the uh, the mist comes off the ocean and it drops in and makes a really nice pinot. That's what you learn from the movie. Mm-hmm. Not that you knew that. You don't have to be a connoisseur. Obviously, you just take that out of the movie. But you also learn about, you know, uh, the Burgundy Valley of uh, of France. You learn about that that wine. What is the story here? It's the uh, Shiraz, is from what I understand. Mm-hmm. The Shiraz has a story here. Um, about how the mist comes off, and the the, the I'm not going to yeah, act yeah, like an right. expert. <laughs> I'm just going to say that there is a story. I would export that story to make it attractive to why somebody, if they're coming to Australia, why why they wouldn't want to learn a. Then the B market is oh, so you spend weekends in Napa Valley. You should hop on a plane and take a take a, a two flight hop over to you know the Shiraz you know experts in the world. You know, up here in the Adelaide mm-hmm. Hills, um, I would Adelaide definitely Hills might be more Pinot Noir and well, sort of, but, but yeah, but, 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 it, but you probably have, I know, but no, that, that's right. I'm just sort of getting a bit of our branding into it. But do you get a sense that Australia <laughs> has a brand in the US, like Australian it does. wine, Australian South products. Australia, Southeast Australia? I'm sorry, Southeast Australia seems to have a label on. It seems like at least twenty percent of the wines, if not more than that. It's California and Australia is what I've seen. When you say southeast, what would? That's what they say. That the label will always say southeastern Australia. Oh, yeah, okay. So it could be here. It could be Melbourne. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it could be wherever. Uh, but that my experience as a consumer is that. So you, you don't to, you don't jump to a, South Australia makes amazing wines. No, but from you, a U.S. context. No, but you, no, but it's. Not, I mean, because they're already printing southeastern Australia, I think that the brand edge is there to own mm. it. Someone needs to own it, you know. And um, if you were to jump on that, I think that South Australia mm. could benefit greatly. Because see, the thing is, is you think about South Australia, you think South Africa, you think South America. See what I'm saying? Mm. I think I think you, if you own that brand, 
and then you put them somewhere on their visits and you you create like a you know a um, you know wine weekends which I'm sure they do um, but if you exported that as a necessary for a serious connoisseur yep. you know so in the US you wouldn't think like like Coonawarra, Clare, McLaren Vale, Adelaide Hills, uh, Barossa probably have five kind of key regions I'm sorry yeah West, something, but, but, Western, would you, but in the US would people know that they exist in their wine regions of the world oh I would definitely I'd be yeah definitely that would be the export. No, but, but but do you think in the US currently they would be aware that those wine regions are good wine regions? I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I'd be honest okay. with you. Yeah, I, no. I don't swim in those circles. So no, okay. I could ask my buddy who does. Yeah. But um, uh, I do believe it, no matter what, I can guess that it's not putting the dollars in to, to be experts yeah. on and, that and global just, scale. And from an export side, when some of the, we're doing more and more research, but it's helping businesses from Australia and South Australia getting to export markets. I've done research across right. a lot of countries, different countries. So, And the US is complex. Would you be going target a state that fits your your brand and the target market is right? Let's say we're, we're, target, we're, gonna, we're gonna target California, for example, or, um, or, or the East Coast. Is that what you'd be doing or be more across the US? Oh, I'd be in West Coast. Yeah. You have a relationship with California um, unlike any other state in America. So I would be strengthening those relationships in their wine regions. Um, relationship how? Like partnerships. How do we, yeah, how do we oh, have yeah. a relationship? Uh, well, I mean, first off, cultural ties. Yeah, you know, okay. you need the p- politicians to, you know, it would be really great is if you had members of parliament going over and trying um, trying the wines over there. Okay, and then you bring, then you have like a challenge: who's best wine? So the you know, mayor, uh, Lord Mayor of Adelaide, challenges uh, the Lord, uh, the the mayor of uh, I, I don't know Napa, you know, some some yeah, mayor in okay. Napa, um, you know, and then all of a sudden they have like a contest or whatever to see, you know, who's best, and uh, and the proceeds from that weekend in California and in Adelaide. You know, goes to a charity. You know, and yeah, benefits okay. a, a nonprofit. But you need to culturally tie uh, through their motivations of being known. So, California is going to want to be known in Australia, and Australia is going to want to be known in California. Okay, that's interesting. Like creating those like those strategic relationships, bridges yeah. between the two. Yeah, and, yeah, and you and host weekends. You know, and uh, you know, even if it's not your, if it's you know, getting beyond yourself is the key to consumerism. It's the soft sell. It's the identify that people like wine. Now, how can you be altruistic about it? Well, then you can celebrate wine. You don't need to celebrate just your wine. Just celebrate wine with these people, you know, and say, brought to you by Penfolds. Yeah. Yeah, where's Penfolds? Let me tell you. Mm. So we started off with you as a young boy. <laughs> so you, how old are your children? Nine and seven. Yeah, and they're living in Adelaide. Yeah. So That's why I'm here. What what do you, I don't know, what what do you do? You give them any guidance? Are they self perpetuating at the moment? Do you like what 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 do you hope for them? What what what's your recommendation for your children, other young people, young people, young at heart? I'll tell you, they. Uh, I can't say where they go to school. I shouldn't say that, but where they go to school, um, they have great diversity. The lessons they're learning now will form a more mature adult that I find in a lot of adults. And that's, I think, what I mean by mature emotionally. You know, mature in the sense that all people are, are equal and they deserve uh, respect, including themselves. They should never give up respect. 
just today, I was dealing with my son who was told that he was, there was too many kids on the line for their handball. You know, and then he dealt with it by going to the schoolyard supervisor and saying, you know, there's too many people online because he was told he couldn't play because there was too many. I pulled him aside and I said, so what's the problem? He's like, well, why wasn't I chosen? And I go, well, this is an opportunity for you. And he goes, what? And I go, go over to the four square over there, form your own line. I said, it, don't, don't waste your time wondering why it is that they don't want you. Just form your own direction. Create your own game. Here's an opportunity for you, actually. It's not something to worry about. Don't worry about what others' problems are. You just move on and you try to create. Okay, Daddy. Okay. So he went over. By the time I left the schoolyard, he had five kids lined up playing uh, four-square handball. Don't ask me. I know they bounce the ball. That's all I know. But I want a world in which adversity is what we overcome, not what stops us. You know, um, and I, I want that world. And I, the only way is for them to believe in themselves. And forgiveness. Honestly, um, I am a man of faith. And I believe that uh, we are forgiven every day for our transgressions. Whether we're swearing at the car in front of us or we're judging somebody. You know, we are forgiven um, by God every day. So I have responsibility to pass that along as best as I can to my fellow humans, which I can't say I, I do anywhere near what I should. But as a father, those are the opportunities that I learned. You know, um, I remember uh, my son asking why somebody was, was mean to me. And I said, what are you talking about? He had kept it in his mind for two weeks. He didn't like it. Somebody was mean to his daddy. I didn't even remember anymore, you know? But this is how innocent and where they're forming. They're the mortar, you know? They're building the foundation of the kind of person they're going to be. And I looked at him and said, oh, well, you see, these there are people that have stuff going on, honey. And what we have to do is sometimes we have to just understand. And then what we have to do is we have to forgive. You think we can forgive that person because this person has X, Y, and Z going on. Oh, really? Why is that? I go, it just happens they have this stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good. So yeah. that's what that's the world I want to build for them. Yeah, excellent. Um, I think that's a good spot to stop. Is there a good way to find you? you you're on LinkedIn, but... I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, feel free to, you know, uh, seek me out. Uh, it's uh, Roger Wilkins, and um, I think the picture of the profile is uh, me talking on radio. I think it is. Yeah, Anyways. I think it is too. All right. Thank you, Roger. That was great. I appreciate yeah, it. N- n- nice sort of getting those sort of different counter perspectives of different, yeah, Australia versus the US. I think it's in, in knowing where it comes from. All right. I only owe my experience. I don't own the truth. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.